Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. Before we begin and before we even thank our sponsors, just a reminder, incredible program that we have tonight. In fact, we're expecting such a wonderful crowd, you might want to just stay in your seat from now until then. Make sure that you reserve your fantastic seat. Rav Moshe Weinberger Shlita, the Rav of Ish Kodesh and Woodmere, a really transformational uh, leader, powerful speaker, incredibly inspiring individual, live music, inspiration. It's going to be a tish, the lights dimmed, candles, going to be an incredible, incredible night tonight. You do not want to miss. So wherever you live and wherever you drove from for this year, you'll want to drive back for tonight. It's at 7.30 p.m. right here in the Rand Sanctuary. There are flyers on uh, your chairs. You can feel free to take one. Not too late to join our host committee. There's a private reception beforehand with Rav Weinberger, if you want to be in a small private reception with him. But hopefully he'll join us tonight at 7.30. I promise you, you won't be sorry you came. You will walk away inspired, uplifted, enriched. You will walk away, as the young people say, it'll be fire. You'll be on fire. I'm one of the young people, by the way. So uh, you do not want to miss it. That is tonight. Okay, I want to thank our generous sponsors. The Parsha Shear for the year, Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lila Nishma's David Ben Menachem Manish. This morning, Shear is also sponsored by Harriet Goldman in commemoration of her beloved husband's year at site, Hilton Goldman. Hillel Ben Gershon, as the Shama should have, and Aliyah. Parsha's Yisro. We are making our way and we are turning a corner on Sefer Shmos. We have made our way out of Egypt. Egyptians have pursued us. We face the sea. Hashem did a miracle as He does for so many of us. When it feels like there's an obstacle, there's an impediment blocking our path. When it feels like there's no way forward. When it feels like we're stuck. And how are we going to take our next step? Sometimes we have to find the combination of both faith, the Yamuna in Hashem Tfilah, combined with combined with initiative. Hishtadlis. Start walking, start moving, start going. And Hashem makes things open up. He opens up the sea and he opens up those things blocking our lives and we're able to walk through. And Yisro heard, he heard about these incredible miracles. And the parasha begins, page 394. Yisro heard, Yisro tuned in. Was he watching CNN or Fox News? Did he get the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal? We don't know. But we do know that he heard the news of what happened. And not only did he read that news and then just turn the page, continue with his Danish, Take the next sip of his coffee. Mashmua Shama Ubarash, he says. He listened and he heard in an altogether different way of hearing and listening. We've spoken about this countless times in the past, so we will not revisit it now. But the notion that Yisro is the paradigm, Yisro is the role model. Yisro teaches us how to listen, not passive listening, not a listening that Stephen Covey says most people do, where the listening is just the break they take in between talking but a listening, which is an active listening, a desire to hear, to absorb, to be changed, to be transformed, a listening where you turn off your output and you turn up your input, so there's no static. There's not a conflict or tension between the two. Mashmu Shama, Rashi says, Uba, and he came, we quote every year. What do you mean Mashmu Shama Uba? What did he hear that made him come? The Gemara, the Pasuk itself tells us. So why was Rashi asking? The question was not Mashmu Hashem, what did he hear? We all hear all kinds of things all the time. Mashmu Hashem, Uba. What kind of listening did he do? A listening that led to action. We all listen, we hear, we become aware, 
we're knowledgeable, we're familiar with countless pieces of information, with data points, we hear stories, and you know what they do for us? Gornished. Often nothing, nothing. We heard it, we moved on. Maybe it got us choked up for a moment. Maybe we even forwarded it to our family. But then what? It died in the email. That was it. Did it make us stop and think? Did it make us stop and change? Did we go and inquire? Did we go and sign up? Did we go and join the cause? Did we go and be part of a movement? Yisro is exceptional. He's not the only one who heard. Shamu Amim Gazun. The entire world heard what happened. It was broadcast everywhere. God, 10 miracles, split a sea. We survived the attack of Amalek. There were no shortage of news stories that the Jewish people were the front headline of. Everyone heard, the whole world knew, but you know what they did? They turned the page of the paper. They turned the channel. They went to the next, they clicked on the next story. Yisra says, whoa, one second, something's going on here. I gotta check this out. I've gotta see for myself. I wanna be part of this. And that's our first insight. It comes from the Megad Yosef. Yosef Sarotskin. He heard about the splitting of the sea and he heard about the war with Amalek. These were exceptional experiences, the splitting of the sea and surviving the vicious attack of Amalek. Are they the most exceptional? Are they the most extraordinary? They're certainly not the only ones. What else happened? Ten plagues. God intervened ten times to suspended the rules of nature. Ten times Moshe, his loyal servant, predicted it. Ten times God came through. Yisro wasn't moved by that. Yisro's not impressed. He doesn't get up. He doesn't schedule his flight until the splitting of the sea. And what is it about Mohammed Amalek? Venir api mashamru chazal. So says of Suratkin. It seems based on what Chazal tells Shamu Amimir Gazun, The splitting of the sea was heard around the world. We don't find the Eser Makos were, but we find the splitting of the sea, not we find, we say. In our Az Yashir, every day we say, Shamu Amimir Gazun. The whole world heard and they trembled. So if the whole world heard, you know who else heard? You know who was among the world? Amalek. And what did Amalek do? Now you're Amalek. You're an enemy of the Jewish people. And they're not even born yet. It's really extraordinary they have an enemy. Think about it. The Jewish people had not yet even gotten out of bed in the morning and they had an enemy. 210 years, they're enslaved in Egypt. 210 years, they're subjugated, they're in servitude, they're persecuted, they're oppressed, they're murdered. And they've been liberated for about half a second and there's already a nation that wants to wipe them out. What, what'd they do? What did they do? What aggravated, what created, what incited this first anti-Semitism? What did they do wrong? It's very telling about anti-Semitism, the world's oldest hatred, that it has no basis, it has no rational explanation, it has no excuse. Because the Jewish people had done nothing to offend the world. They had done nothing to even yet be the moral conscience of the world. And yet, before their, or at the same time as their very birth as a people, a Malik's already out to get them. So if you're a Malik and you're out to get them, and you say to yourself, huh, there's Jewish people. I don't like them. I don't want them around. But is this the moment to attack? 
You just heard that there was a miracle. God split a sea. That doesn't happen every day. The sea was split in two, dry land in between. The Jews walk across, and then the sea collapses and drowns the Egyptians. Amalek heard that news. They read that headline. And you know what they said to themselves? Let's attack. They were not moved an iota. They were not moved an iota from the miracles that were done to the Jewish people. So therefore, you know what they said to them, you know what Yisra said to himself? If a Malik, if what it means to be a non-Jew, if what it means to be a spectator, an observer to this story is that you're willing to ignore the message of history. You're willing to ignore and neglect the lesson that's in your face. I don't want any part of that. I want to go be part of the other team. I want to go be part of the Jewish people. Vayishma Yisro. Because when you think about it, what is it? I've shared previously, this is one of my own personal insights. I have very few. Mostly I'm just good at repackaging and sharing with you. But Vayishma Yisro, he didn't hear that the Jewish people defeated Amalek. You know why he didn't hear that? Why didn't he hear that? Why didn't he hear that we defeated Amalek? Because if you paid attention to last week's parsha, we didn't defeat Amalek. <laughs> we survived Amalek. The end of last week's parsha, Yeshua gathers the men and Moshe is watching and he raises his arms and we survived their attack. We didn't win. We won the battle. But we were not victorious or triumphant in a war. So that's why it doesn't say that Yisro heard that we defeated Amalek because we hadn't defeated Amalek, which makes the question all the more compelling. So what's so exciting or impressive about it that made him come? Why would he arrive? Did you hear about the big tie in the soccer game, the hockey game, football game? Jewish people tied Amalek. Woo! That's my team. Where can I get some swag? Why is Yisra showing up? Because we survived the attack of Amalek. We didn't even beat them. So I humbly submit and suggest to you, Amalek is the most wicked nation on earth. They are the epitome of evil. When evil identifies and is threatened by and seeks to eliminate something, you know it's special. You know it's holy. And I would argue with a certain sense of pride that that's true about the Jewish people. That the world is irrationally obsessed with us, disproportionately focused on us. It's not in fact a badge of shame, it's a badge of honor. We wish they would change their attention. We wish they would look to something new. The very fact that the presence of the Jewish people in Israel or around the world means something to people when it should mean nothing. Look at how small we are, how insignificant we are, how negligible we are statistically, and yet we draw such attention to the world. The same reason Yisrael looked up and he said, Ha! Amalek's obsessed with this people. Amalek's the epitome of evil, and evil is threatened by this people, this nascent people. I don't yet know who they are, but I know that if Amalek is so threatened by them, I want to check them out. I want to be part of that. I want to know more about what's going on over there. So Yisro picks up, and he doesn't just have that thought. He makes a change. He makes a change. There was a groundswell of Aliyah after the Six-Day War and other significant times in history. There are moments where you read the writing on the wall, you read history and the headlines, and you can't sit still, and you're not the same person. And that's Yisro. We listen to Yisro. I've shared in the past, 
That's why I think that even according to the opinions that Yisrael really arrives after Matan Torah, Hashem places the arrival of Yisro in our parsha before Matan Torah. Why? Because listening is a prerequisite to receiving the Torah. Being an active listener, learning and listening like Yisro, following that quality is a prerequisite. It's a critical prerequisite to accurately and authentically being able to receive the Torah. Perak Yilchas Pasakim, moving right along. Yisra takes his daughter Tzipora, Shnevaneh, her two sons, Asher Shem Echad Gershom, Kiamar Gera Yisri Be'eretz Nachriya, Vashem Echad Eliezer, Kelokevi Be'ezri Ve'atzilena Mecher of Parao. So Yisra gathers up the Mishpacha, he gathers his family, his daughter Tzipora, his Enekach, his grandchildren, he didn't call them that yet, he hadn't converted, but his grandsons Gershom and Eliezer. Why is Gershom named Gershom? Because I was a ger, I was a stranger in a strange land. And why is the other Eliezer? Because God came to my aid and he saved me from the sword of Paro. He saved me from the sword of Paro. Tzorach Birur wonders the Chavetz Chaim. Shem mahuso. A name is not just a symbol or a signal. A name is an, a description. A name is a description. Shifusav, it represents the goal, the aim, the ambition. Why did Moshe and Sipora name their son Gershom? What is so significant or what is descriptive that Moshe wants to memorialize that I was a sojourner, I was a stranger in a strange land? The second name, Eliezer, means Hashem was my Be'atzileni, Ezri. He was my help. God saved me. I was in the house of Paro. Paro wanted to kill me. He wanted to destroy me. He wanted to annihilate. He wanted to assassinate me. And Hashem saved me. And I'm going to name one of my children. Hashem saved me. Eliezer. God saved me. Survived the car crash. Survived the diagnosis. Survived hosting a pro-Israel night, survived, whatever it is, one survived. You name your child, God saved me. I want to forever remember, HaKara Satov, God saved me. That makes sense. So name the first child, God saved me. Chronology, chronologically, it happened first. Why do you name the first child? You know, did you hear about the time I got stuck in France? It was on a flight, but then I got diagnosed Corona and I had to quarantine. So I named my kid, I got stuck in France. I was a stranger in a strange land. What a strange way to name a kid. And why would you name your first child that? So the Chavetz Chaim says the following. When Moshe first arrives at Yisro's house, is Yisro the man we meet in our parsha? Yisro now is the righteous convert. Yisro now is the active listener. Yisro now is the role model who hears the messages of history. When Moshe first arrives, you know who Yisro is? The professor of comparative religion. When Moshe first arrives, Yisro is the idolater who has experimented with every idolatry in the world. So Moshe falls in love at the well and he's going home to his father-in-law Yisro. But he's worried, legitimately so. He doesn't want to assimilate. He doesn't want to become compromised or corrupt. So what does he do? 
I mean, imagine at the bris, the shver is right there, and you say, I know we're living in your house right now, but let me be clear, and I can't be more clear than by naming my first son that we're just stopping by. So my first son's name, your first grandchild is, we're only here temporarily, that's his name. We're strangers, we're stopping by, we're outsiders. That's his name. And the first opportunity I have to get out of here, I'm out. And I want to go back to my place. So in order to remain mindful, in order to remain very focused, he names his son, I'm just a stranger. And this is the legacy of Avram Avinu, is it not? And this is the mission statement of a Jew, particularly in Golis. Although the Jews in Israel are in Golis. Go into so many restaurants or the mall, listen to the music playing, and you are in Golis. The lyrics, the language, it's even worse because many don't even know what it means. If, you, if your English is your first language, you shudder sometimes when you hear the music that's being played. You can have Golis even geographically when you're in Israel, certainly when we are outside of it. And the message in the mission statement, the motto and the bumper sticker of a Jew is, I'm a resident and a stranger simultaneously. I participate in, I contribute to, and I take out the best of where I live, but I'm still a stranger, I'm an outsider. I'm connected to and part of, but I'm altogether apart from and totally different simultaneously. That tension which seems to be opposites and contradictory, that's the challenge of being a Jew, is to not make them contradict. I'm here, I'm present, I participate, but we, on the other hand, there's a lot we don't have in common. Our definitions, our values, our orientations, our attitudes, there's so much that's different. So as Moshe is in Midian, he's in this foreign land, this foreign home, and he's in the home of the king. He's the, he's the priest of Midian, Yisrael. He is the king of comparative religion. Moshe says, whoa, 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 my first son's name is, I'm just stopping by, I'm a stranger. We have a lot in common, thank you. Shkoyach for the hospitality, but I'm not here to stay. And as much as we have in common, we have more that separates us and that leaves us different. And so yes, there was time for Hakar Satov. Eliezer, God, I'm so grateful you saved my life. But what was the point of saving my life if I'm going to assimilate and lose who I am? So even before I say thank you, the first name is not Eliezer, the first name is Gershom, even before we get to it. Moving along. I'm coming. Watch out. Here I come. And your wife and your two sons are with her. Moshe goes out to greet him. And he kissed him. We've spoken about this in the past too. We won't speak about it now. Who's he and who's him? He kissed him. Intentionally, the Pasuk's ambiguous and uses pronouns. Vayetze Moshe lekros chosno. We have specific nouns now. Moshe goes to greet his father-in-law. Vayishtachu, and he bows. Vayishaklo, and he kisses him. Who bowed? Who kissed whom? Vayishal. I just wanted to be able to use the word whom. Vayishalu ish lereihu lishalom. They inquire one to the other how their their well-being. Vayavoa Allah. And they go inside. So Moshe is loving having his father-in-law there. And he says, let me tell you everything going on. 
Let me tell you what's happening. Let me fill you in. You're never going to believe. Let me tell you about all the travails, all the challenges, all the problems, everything that happened on the way, and you're never going to believe it. You're never going to believe it. Now, why is he telling him about Why is he telling him about all the travails and all the problems and all the challenges? What should he be telling him about? It's Moshe Rabbeinu. It's Mr. Positive. Smile. Focus on the good. There were miracles. You just walked away from miracles. Miracles. Israel's closed down. You miraculously were able to get in. There were a hundred miracles that took place, even the fact that you sat in a tin can that flew through the air and you were able to get to Israel in a few hours. And when you land, you say, you're not going to believe the Zaftig person sitting next to me and they ran out of Diet Coke on the plane and my seat didn't recline as far as I wanted it to go. And the person who picked you up at the airport says, are you out of your mind? Nobody can come to Israel right now. The country's cut, closed down. You somehow snuck in. And you were on a box that was flying through the air. And you're able to just land and go to Israel. And all you're focused on was that uh, the meal was, uh, wasn't so great. That's what you're thinking about. The person next to you took the armrest for the whole flight. There should be, instead of a safety card, there should be an etiquette card, who gets the armrest? <laughs> there are certain rules about who gets the armrest. They're unwritten, but they should be written. And I think the flight attendants, we know how to buckle a seatbelt. Instead, stand in the aisle and tell us the rules of the armrest. All right, I got that out of my system. So you land in Israel. Moshe Rabbeinu should be telling Yisro, Shver, you're not going to believe it. It's un- you're not going to believe what we went through. I know you read about it, but let me tell you, what you read was a fraction of what we experienced. Let me tell you, there were 10 miracles. And then we got to the sea. We thought we were safe. And it turned out the Egyptians were right behind us. And we thought it was all over. Shver, you're not going to believe it. The sea split. Instead, what does Moshe tell him? You're not going to believe it. We thought we were out. They chased us. Oh, I almost lost my mind. The people were fighting. This guy, Nachshon, and finally, he jumped it. He tells them about all the problems. They wouldn't leave the sea. They were collecting all the gold and silver. I had to schlep them away. And they're already a complaining and cordial people. They want the water. All the problems. Moshe is our role model. It's Torah's Moshe. If it's Torah's Moshe and Moshe's our role model, what happened to the positivity bias? What happened to the focus on positivity? What's the kolatlaos? Let me tell you about all the problems. So there's a Rav in Ramad Ashkol, my son-in-law's Rav, Rav Weinfeld. I've become a very big fan of his. And he says the following, which I think is Pasha Pshat. I think this is the Pshat. Rashi says, Moshe tells him about everything happening at Kriyas Yamsavah, limshoch as libo lekarvo Torah. His goal was to try to draw him closer to Torah. Draw him closer to Torah. But if you took him earlier, in Pasuk Rashi says about Yisrael, that why did Yisrael come to begin with? He was willing to go to a barren, desolate place because he was so moved and driven to hear and to be transformed by Torah. So Yisrael already made this great move. So why did Moshe have to be Moshe Libo? So what did they have in the whole conversation to begin with? Yisrael is about to criticize Moshe, not criticize. In-laws don't criticize. He's about to offer constructive criticism. I'm an in-law now, so I'm on the in-law team. He's about to offer constructive criticism to Moshe that you don't have enough time for people. The tent, the line outside the tent is more than a COVID testing site. So if he doesn't have enough time, why is Moshe wasting his time telling Yisrael what he already knows? So many questions. Says 
Rav Weinfeld. Moshe wasn't telling him the glory of Kriyas Yamsav and Melchemes Amalek. He was telling him about the Tzaras. You know why? Look at the Rambam Hilchos Yisurebiya, Perak Yudalit, Halacha Aleph. Zog the Rambam. When a person comes to be Megayer, we had conversion meetings last week, every month. I'm the head of Manal, the basin of conversion here in South Florida for our community. And last week, incredible, wonderful candidates considering that life-changing transformation. And we always reiterate to them. And while they're in the mikvah, before they dunk and come up a Jew, we say, do you know that right now you don't have a target on your back? But when you come out of this mikvah and you're a Jew, it means that a gunman can sneak into your shul and hold you hostage because of his anti-Semitic demands, make no mistake, FBI finally corrected themselves. We tell the candidate, you need to know, you need to know that right now, you're free and clear. The moment you become a Jew, there's a target on your back. Writes the Rambam, Why have you come to convert? Do you not know that we're persecuted and oppressed, that there's anti-Semitism? And if the person says, yeah, I know, I'm, I'm not under a rock. I know about anti-Semitism. I read the ADL report. I followed what happened last week in Texas. I know, but you know what? I'm not even worthy still to join the, I desperately want, yes, I'm all in. We accept such a person immediately. Don't join the Jewish people because you think, you know, you'll become a successful lawyer or stockbroker, accountant. Don't join the Jewish people because you think you're going to land a rich Jewish husband or a beautiful Jewish woman. Don't join the Jewish people because of our fine cuisine. Don't join the Jewish people for any external reason because you need to know that with all those rights and privileges, that with gefilte fish and chalant comes anti-Semitism. So only sign up if you're prepared to bear the burden of anti-Semitism. And the person says, I know, and I'm in nonetheless. Says Rav Weinfeld, you know where we learn this from? Moshe Rabbeinu. Yisro shows up and he says, I'm ready to join. Where's the closest mikvah? Dunk me, I'm ready. I'm all in. And Moshe says, whoa, 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 dad. Shver, let me tell you. Not all fun and games. You understand, we thought we were out. They chased us. They still wanted to take us down. And so he's telling him about the Tsaros. Moshe is telling Kolatla all the travail, the tribulations. Because if you're coming to be Megayer, then you need to know. Rus says, First thing one needs to do is identify with the people and not with the success. You can't be a fair weather fan and join the Jewish people. You can't just latch on to when it's all well and good. You have to know Kolatla'a. You have to know all the suffering and all the challenges. You have to know everything else that led up to it and be part of it and want to be in nonetheless. How does Yisrael react? What does he say? Yisrael says, now I know God is greater than all other gods, all other deities, all other idols from the very matter in which the Egyptians had conspired against them. What does that mean? Now I know. What do you mean now you know? Only once Moshe finishes speaking, now he knows. He knew before Moshe finished speaking. How do we know that? Rashi says, I thought I knew God. I thought I read the headlines. I thought I was moved to join the Jewish people. But that was nothing. Now, now I really know. What do you mean, Atta, now? Atta Yadati. You studied comparative religion. 
you heard the Jewish story and you were moved by it to come. Did Moshe tell you anything new? What did Moshe add? A few details, a few personal first-hand experiences, but there's nothing new that came out of it. What do you mean, Atayadati? So Reb Chaim Mordechai Katz of Tells learns from here, this is quoted in our Sefer, we've been making our way for Lesit Chael Yon, that after a person has Havana Vakar Begadus Hashem Isbarach, Enkan Rak Tosefes Havana Bidia Vakar Hakodemas, Elakola Yedia Mishtane Umuvenes Betsur Acheres Legamre, Achinases Yedia Acheres Vechadasha Legamre. When you have a moment in your life, you're present at the birth of a child, you hear great news, something seemingly coincidental works out so in your favor, something you were so worried about and had such anxiety over turned out to be nothing. When you witness a magnificent sunrise or sunset, when something extraordinary or transformational happens, and in that moment you feel undeniably, with no doubt whatsoever, with no uncertainty, there is a Hashem, and He's involved in my life, and He loves me. You know when you're gonna feel that? Tonight at 7.30. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating. I don't overpromise and underdeliver. I don't. I don't. You don't hear me make these promises often. But the dimmed light and the music we're going to play and you're going to close your eyes and you're going to feel your neshama moved and Rav Weinberg has a way to speak right to the neshama. Right to the neshama. And in that moment and in those moments that you're singing and your eyes are closed and there is no time and there is no space and there is no to-do list. All there is is to dream about who we could be all there is to feel the loving embrace of Hashem. All there is is to lean in to the sense that there's order and purpose to this world and this universe. In those moments, we feel a connection. We feel alive. So says the tells thereof, in those moments that you feel alive, it's not that, you know, my Amuna was a five and now I cranked it up a notch. I got it up to an eight in that moment. It's not that I added on or expanded. It's that it's replaced. Find and replace. You don't know. If you have to write a weekly article, you are a good friend of the find and replace feature in Microsoft Word. But find and replace. What I thought was Amuna, ah, was nothing. Find and replace. What I've just experienced has transformed me. So I'm not adding on to what I had before. It is an altogether ex new experience of what I had before. This is true in another area of life, love. Sometimes with the spouse, sometimes with the child. Something happens that in that moment, there aren't words that capture how connected and how much love you feel. And in that moment, you don't say, I used to love you, I feel more love for you. You say, this is a categorically new love. I, I feel something categorically different. Yisrael doesn't say, I thought I knew him, but I know him better. I believe in him more. Now, now in this moment, this is a categorically different and new connection and feeling that I had before, Atta. It's a very, very beautiful insight, an important insight for us to think about, to look for those moments and experiences, and when we are processing them, when we are processing those moments and experiences, to realize that what I'm feeling right now is not just adding on to what I had before, but I'm a new person, and this is a new relationship, and that's a new emotion. Atayadati, we're gonna see this theme repeated in a moment with the notion of, with the notion of Hayom. I went to a Siyam Ashas last night, a member of our shul, Moshe Winograd, made a Sima Shas. Two years ago, he decided that he was going to finish Shas. It's actually an extraordinary story. Two years ago, he watched Rabbi Yoni Levin, who's here right now running our winter kolel, and is the new Rosh Hashiva of the Yeshiva of South Florida, starting in Elul. Rabbi Yoni Levin makes a Sima Shas every year. 
Every year he finishes the whole Shas. He learns seven and a half blot a day, and he finishes Shas every year. I grew up with him in Tinek. He's a couple years younger than me in Frisch, and he's finishing Shas every year. I told him last night at the Siyam, I said, in Woodmere, the rabbis make a Siyam a Shas, Come to Boca, the Balabatim do. So Moshe Winograd made a Siyam Shas last night. He, he watched Rabbi Levin's Siyam two years ago, and he said, you know what? I think I could try that. And Rabbi Levin spoke last night, and he said that every year after his Siyam, part of the reason, the main reason he does it is to try to motivate and inspire others. He said every year he gets countless phone calls of people who want to know, how do you do it? How do you organize it? Where do you start? When do you find the time? Help me. He said he's gotten countless phone calls, countless years. Only one person has ever gotten to the finish line. And it was last night. Moshe Winograd. So Moshe Winograd last night, I'm embarrassing him publicly, and for that, it's too bad. But I hope he forgives me. He's a very humble person. There are 36 Mesechtas in Shas. Last night was his 36th birthday. And when he spoke at a Siyam Shas, he went through every Mesechta and turned it into a tefillah. He took bracha, he went through every Mesechta and used it as a tefillah. Hashem, help me this way. Help us feel closer that way. Thank you for this that way. I sat there so moved. I'm still, I, t- I texted him, I'm still processing that the love note that you wrote to Hashem and the romantic description of a relationship with Torah that we were Zohar, you let a few of us listen in on. Why am I telling you this whole story? Ateyadati. I sat there feeling, I'm witnessing something and I'm listening to something and I'm feeling something. Ateyadati kikadol Hashem. Right now I'm experiencing something. So it's not, oh, this is more. This is a better seam than I ever went to. No, this is, this is an altogether new experience. Atta, right now, it's something altogether new. And it's important for us to think about that as we process it. Let's try to pick it up a little bit. Try to get a few more ideas. So Yisro makes a barbecue. Karbanos, thank you, God. So Yisro's making a seam. He says, I found God, I come, I converted. I want to have a barbecue. I want to have a pot. I don't know if he served Chinese, barbecue. Ola Uzvachim. He had a barbecue. And he invites Aaron, Kozik Yisrael, all the elders, before God, to come eat before God. To come eat before God. Says Rashi. From here you learn that if you eat a meal with a Talmud Chacham, it's like you are deriving benefit, pleasure, directly from the Almighty. What? You sat at a meal with a Talmud Chacham? It's as if you're sitting with Hashem Himself? I understand you're sitting in the base measures of the Talmud Chacham. I understand you're sitting in the shear of the Talmud Chacham. But you're sitting, breaking bread with the Talmud Chacham? Hananami Suda, if you enjoy from the Suda, what does that mean? And Yisro's inviting Moshe, Aaron, Zikna, Yisrael, this they have time for? And the Torah. So I think last year, previously we quoted Rabbi Salvechik on this. Just to remind you what he said. Previously we quoted Rabbi Salvechik on this. Oh. He served the food. One would have expected Yisro to be the one to serve the guest. No, that was a different insight. Here it is. Lecho lachem im Dining before God, how strange the phrase would have sounded to the Greeks of old. Thinking before, rather, with God was a truism in late Greek philosophy among the Stoa who considered the finite human intellect an infinitesimal component of the infinite divine logos and who regarded thinking as a reflex of the divine noetic gesture. Again, I remind you that the Rav learned English when he got to America. Whenever man engages in cognition, he submerges in God because only through him is acquisition of knowledge possible. 
To come close to God or to unite with Him through such unrefined carnal activity as eating would simply evoke ridicule. To the Greeks, the idea that you could find God in the pastrami on rye, to the idea that you find God in the potato kugel, that you could find God in the delicious gefilte fish would be an insult, would be the subject of ridicule. But our religious conscience felt differently. One who eats with God in his presence. How? By sacrificial action, which converts the food of men into the bread of Hashem. Judaism develops a new institution, the Suda. It is neither an ordinary meal nor a feast. It is more than that. It is the crucible in which the bread of man is transposed into the bread of Hashem, expressing the fellowship between Hashem and man and the participation of Hashem in all human pursuits and activities. The realization of the idea of Suda can occur only when a man eats differently from animal, when he displays uniqueness with regard to the physiological processes which are required to satisfy the demands of his body. From this pasuk, the Gemara derives the maxim that whoever enjoys a meal with a scholar, sharui, it is as if he enjoyed the radiance. The word sharui is derived from a phrase that appears in regard to the Nazir, who is prohibited from partaking of the grape-based products. Mishras anavim, bread soaked in wine. Just as bread absorbs wine, the divine presence permeates the meal through the participation of the Talmud Chacham. In other words, for us, religion is not only in the shul or the base medrash. For us, religion is not asceticism. For us, religion is not transcendence. For us, religion is not a vow of abstinence or celibacy or a fast. For us, connection to Hashem is found where? In the pastrami and rai. It's found in the gefilte fish, the chant, and the kegel. For us, you find Hashem by transforming and elevating the physical, the mundane, into the spiritual. The Rav is a brisker, is writing. But if you've been to a Hasidish Atish, this is the idea of the Shirayim of the Tzaddik. When the Tzaddik eats from the food, and the Tzaddik is able to have that consciousness and that mindfulness and endow that food with that holiness and that sanctity, and the Tzaddik's act of eating is altogether different than us, we still struggle with the animal instinct and impulse. So you could say, Le Kavit Shabbos Kaddish, or Blachman and Karen Biyavna used to say, you know, the kid would flip out. He was in KBY for 20 minutes and he was already now in Shabbos. The covered Shabbos Kaidish. And Rablachim would say, Are you sure it's not the covered your boich? Maybe you should say, The covered mine boich. It's for my stomach. Are you sure it's the covered Shabbos Kaidish that you're If not for Shabbos, you wouldn't be diving headfirst into the Kishka? Are you sure it's the covered Shabbos Kaidish, not the covered your boich? So we still struggle. A shtickle covered our boich. It's still a little bit for our stomach, for ourselves. But the tzaddik is kula l'kavet Shabbos Kodesh. Tzaddik's able to get to that level of their eating is all about Hashem. So their food now is transformed, it's different. So the shirayim, if you can eat and absorb some of the holiness and the way they transform that food, pss, special. Now I personally enjoy the slonimer tish in Yerushalayim. It's the one tish I've ever been to. That The shirayim they put on a plate with a fork. Most it's a lot more hamish than that. Super spreader before I ever heard the word super spreader. So, but the shirayim is to, more than that, the act of eating is transformed. And that's what, again, a very different source than a chassidish rav or the rav. Shmuel Birnbaum was the Rosh Hashiv of the Mir, Zatzal. He says, So maybe I would have thought, What's the hana'a you get? What is the pleasure you derive from a meal with a Talmud Chacham? What's the pleasure? The shtikl Torah, they say. They say Edvar Torah at the table. That's the, the Hana. 
אבל רש"י ביר להג'ה, כאילו נהנות על ידי סודה, מסופים בה. ורש"י says it's not a דבר תורה, it's the fact that the tzaddik is eating. עצם האכילה הגשמס נהפכס לדבר רוחני. Their eating is not mundane, profane, it's not secular, their eating is a religious activity. Their eating is bringing Hashem down into that eating. And that's our mission. Our job is to sanctify the profane. To know Hashem in all that we do. And he writes here, the Rav Shemuel Birnbaum, the Rosh Hashim of the Mir, Zetzal. That's the idea of tefillin. Menichen tefillin, ochlin, matzah, muvan lamesh, zetzal, maisa mitzvah. When I eat the matzah, I make a bracha al achilas matzah. I have kavana for the matzah. I'm self-conscious about the kezayis, pechte achilas pras. I'm very focused, I'm present in my eating of the matzah. The level of mindfulness you have when you eat the matzah is the mindfulness we should have with every bite that we eat all the time. Of what we're doing. And that it too is a way to connect to Hashem. And that Hashem can be found in it. Kal Rebbe was here a few weeks ago, the Tish Friday night, I noticed something interesting. There's a big Indian in Bali, Musar. I noticed that when he ate the soup, he had a hot bowl of soup that was put in front of him. When he ate the soup, most people when they eat soup, what do they do? It's a piping hot bowl of soup. If it's not hot enough, send it back. It's the Misora from my father. If you don't burn your tongue on the soup, it wasn't hot enough. That's our family Misora. So, the soup is piping hot. So what do most people do when they slurp their soup? You lean over and you eat your soup. But if you look at the tzaddikim, they never ever bow down or lean in or come closer to the food. The food comes closer to them. So I noticed that the Kavar sat up straight and he took each spoon of soup and his hand underneath it and he brought it up to his mouth. The, food, the food's here to serve us. We're not here to serve it. We eat to live. We don't live to eat. And when you lean in and you bow, these are minor little, it's a little gesture, it's a little posture. Does God really care if you lean in the soup? Yeah. He doesn't care because he cares about the soup, he cares because he cares about us. And we condition ourselves and we impact ourselves and we consciously, subconsciously express our attitude towards food in the way that we eat. In the way that we eat. So not for now, we've given a share last year about the Jewish philosophy of eating. Still trying to put it into practice, but the Jewish philosophy of eating. And Ravitcha Meyer, Biyam Derechacha, has a whole chapter we drew from. And he holds that Achila is specifically the place of Kedusha. Melcham, Alechem. But why? Because we need to eat in order to live. A person can't fast several days in a row, you'll die. You need to be nourished in order to live, which means that what's in the food are the nutrients for life itself. Who gives us life? Hashem. Where can we find Hashem in this world manifest in a physical sense? In the food we eat. So every bite we take, we're not just eating food, we are imbibing and absorbing Hashem. We are swallowing God. We are adding to the chilek elokami ma'al mamish. That is a level of consciousness. That's a level of mindfulness during eating, which is altogether different. So that's hanana misuda shatamide chachamim misubimba. It's not the dvar Torah the Tama Chacham gives. Revol we quote almost every week, Revoba's grandson moved to our community and he told me from a young boy, he grew up in his grandfather's home, Shabbos meals, Yantif meals, and he said his grandfather rarely said a Dvar Torah at the Shabbos table. They sang Zmiros, he told stories, he told jokes, he wanted his family to be happy and smile. He shared Divrei Torah, his whole life was Torah, but not necessarily at the Shabbos table. And that reminds me of this Rashi. Hanene 
Misuda Talmid HaChachamim Misubim, but it's not necessarily the Shtikl Torah, it's not the Dvar Torah. Rebender said here this past Shabbos, don't force your kids to say at the table, and don't think the table's a classroom with a curriculum where you're going to say over your Shir Klali. That's not what the Shabbos table's about. Hanene Misuda Shatamid HaChachamim Misubim, but Kenene Mizif HaShchina is an altogether different attitude. Okay, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Perakir Ches Pasach Chaf. No, sorry. Uh, yeah. No. Go back. Perakir Ches Pasach Yudalad. So now the father-in-law kicks in and he's got some feedback from Moshe. And he says, what is this? You're sitting by yourself and there's a line out the door from the morning until the evening? What's going on over here? What's going on over here all this time? So Soloveitchik says, from morning until evening, says the Rav, the Jews in the desert constituted a classless society. When I first read that, when he says classless society, he doesn't mean that they were classless in their behavior. He means it wasn't divided by class. All their physical needs were satisfied equally. There were few civil cases. In other words, nobody's beamer bumped into somebody else's Honda Accord. Everybody drove the same donkey. Everybody ate the same food, the man that fell. Everybody had the same water that uh, came from the Be'er. Nobody had, you know, the $150 bottle of wine and the other person was drinking the uh, cough syrup. Everybody had the same. People had been in slavery for hundreds of years, ridiculed, humiliated, tortured, their wives dishonored, their children snatched in their arms, brutally murdered. Suddenly they're liberated. Suddenly they find themselves free, independent. Many did not know how to live in freedom. Nightmares pursued them. Memories played havoc with them. Each knock on the door at night reminded them of the blood-chilling scenes of a few years ago. Inmates of the extermination camps have related that for years afterward, they could not sleep at night. Any noise, any knock on the door would frighten them. The people were dislocated mentally, displaced physically, confused, frightened. What a great phrase. Dislocated mentally. You could have a dislocated limb. You could be dislocated mentally. What a great phrase. They didn't need a judge. They needed somebody to lead, to teach, and particularly somebody to confide in. They clung to Moshe. They wanted to be in his company. It's an insight of the Rav. Amazing. Now, this is, the Rav is wondering, there's a line out the door. Moshe's not sticking Q-tips up their nose so they could travel. Why is there a line out the door? What are they waiting for? There's no civil disputes. Nobody owns anything. Everybody's on equal footing. Everyone's of equal class. Their lifestyle doesn't lend itself to conflict. So why is there a line out the door? So says the Rav, because do you know what these people had been through? They clung to Moshe. They wanted to be in his company. His mere presence was inspiring. His ways were assuring and calming. His words of wisdom enlightened them, drove away the ghosts of the past. His words of comfort and solace placated their pent-up emotions, healed their schism, and fused them with hope and faith. Why did the people stand for Moshe before Moshe? Certainly not due to his official capacity. Certainly not because Moshe assumed the role of Oriental ruler and chief justice and required that people stand in his presence. They stood about him because they loved him. They were fascinated by him. They could not be separated from him. The standing was not of a ceremonial nature. It was a spontaneous, natural, almost instinctual nature. You know what this reminds me of? The story of the Kleisenberger. In the DP camp right after the war, on the first Friday night, there's a knock on the tent, the entrance of where the Kleisenberger was staying after liberation the first Friday night in the DP camp. 
and there was a child. The child came to the Kloisenberger and said, could you give me a bracha? The Kloisenberger Rebbe, who himself had lost all of his children, his wife, I think 13 children in the war, said to this child, but I'm not your father. So the child looked up at him and the child said, but I don't, I don't have a father. My father and my mother, they were killed, they were murdered. You're the closest thing I have to a father. Can you give me a bracha? So the Kloisenberger, who himself was recovering, was downtrodden, was despondent, was putting his life back together, who didn't understand or appreciate in that moment that he was the father to this child, put his hands on this child's head. And that Friday night, he benched him. He gave the child a bracha. The child took leave. And a few minutes later, there was another knock on his door. And there was another child. And he said, my father and my mother were killed. Could you give me a bracha? The Kleisenberger gave him a bracha. A few minutes later, there was another dock, and when he opened the door, there was a line of children. As far as the eye could see. They didn't come to the Kleisenberger and be bokarat arav ceremonially or because he had some official position. They didn't do it for his honor. He wasn't the ruler or the chief justice. They didn't go to resolve disputes that they were having in the DP camp. They came because of what he represented, who he was, and the comfort and solace that he offered, and the strength and the support that they needed. So the way the Rav took this Pasuk, which we normally read as, two people having a fight, a dispute, I lent you $100, I didn't, you didn't lend me $100. The Rav, the Rav helps us get into the narrative and into the mindset of where these people had come from and what they wanted and what they longed for and why they were there. Amazing, amazing insight. Bayomahu, Perak Yutas Pasuk Aleph. I'm racing against the clock. In the third month of the Exodus, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, Bayom Hazeh, on this day, they arrived in the Midbar, they arrived in the wilderness. What do you mean they arrived in the wilderness on this day? You just told us the day. What other day did they arrive in the wilderness? Why does it say Bayom Hazeh on this day? It should say Bayom Hahu on that day. Not this day. It should have said on that day. So Rashi says, why does it say on Bayom Hazeh on this day? To teach us that we should see the Torah new as if we just received it now. They've arrived at Harsinai. We're about to have this most seminal moment, of, seminal moment of all human history. The greatest moment of revelation of all of history. And we should tap into and read and experience this story, not as an ancient part of history, not as part of the past, Bayom Hazeh, today, today. Rav Yerucham, Mashkiach of the Mir, This is not just an affectionate expression. Moshe climbed up and he brought the Torah down. Otherwise, it belonged only in the heavens, had no business being here on earth. And when he did, it wasn't one time only. But it's an experience that we have day in and day out, always, over and over, brand new. And that's the meaning the Chassam Sofer says. Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Morasha Kihilas Yaakov. First words we teach a young child when they can speak. Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Moshe commanded us his Torah. Morasha, it is a inheritance. But the word morasha doesn't mean inheritance. What's the word for inheritance? Yerusha. 
So why does the Pasuk say, Morasha? So, said Rabbi Yerucham, Shalayachshav Adam Libo, Shatar Raki Yerusha, Shabam Memele, Me'avam Mirabo. And the Raka Yedei Yegiya Rabba, Me'elz Yizka Adam, Shtei Yerusha, it's low. It doesn't say the word Yerusha because you shouldn't think it's coming. You don't deserve it. You're not entitled to it. It's not automatically being transferred to your bank account. It's not a Yerusha, it's a Morasha. The difference between a Yerusha and a Morasha is a Yerusha, whatever it says in the will, gets executed, you get the money. You don't have to make an effort. What do you sign your name? What do you have to do? You have to give a routing number to wire it? What do you have to do? The Yerusha is coming to you, but a Morasha, you have to earn. A Morasha, you have to work for. A Morasha, you have to put in your effort, your toil. Said Rabbi Yerucham, Torah is not a Yerusha, it's a Morasha. Morasha Kehilas Yaakov. And that's why Hayom Hazeh. We have to arrive at Harsinai when? Not Hayom Hahu, Hayom Hazeh. We have to work for it, we have to earn it now. The Rav had a different word, by the way. The Rav said, you know what the difference is between a Morasha and a Yerusha? It's a beautiful insight. I think I've told it to you before. I'm reminded of it when you see the ad for a watch that I'm going to mispronounce the name. Petit, what's, the, what's it called? Patek Philip? Philippe? I can't even say the name. I'm not worthy of having such a watch. Not that any of you were getting it from me anyway. But what is their tagline? What do they say? You never really own it. You just hold it for the next generation. It's a brilliant ad, whoever did their marketing. You never really own it. You're just holding it for the next generation. A Yerusha, you inherit. You won the lottery. You, you inherit from your family. Go spend it. Go buy a plane and a yacht and fly through that money and you owe nothing to the generations to come. A Yerusha, you're entitled to spend the way you want. A Morasha, you're not entitled to dip into whatsoever. A Morasha is Lahavdil. You could wear that watch, but you're just holding it for the next generation. Torah, you're not allowed to use it. Torah, we are safeguarding so that we can pass it to the next generation. So Sam Sofer says, no. Sam Sofer says, Morasha means you've got to work for it. Yerusha's coming to you, worthy or not, effort or not. Morasha, you've got to work for it, you've got to be worthy. That's why it says Hayom Hazeh, not Hayom Hahu. Kutzker is a different insight. It says the Kutzker is Emes Ve'emuna. Rashi says, Bayom Hazeh. You know what day Rashi says? Rosh Chodesh. Lo yatzarach lichtov ela Bayom Hahu. Mao Bayom Hazeh. She divrei Torah chadash amalacha kilo ayom nitnu. What do you mean? Rashi says, they arrived in the third month on the first day. And he says, I want you to remember that every year, this day, this day, Rosh Chodesh, you receive the Torah. But they didn't get the Torah on Rosh Chodesh. When did we get the Torah? Which day of the month of Sivan? Seventh of Sivan. Sixth of Sivan, seventh of Sivan, where the discussion is. So why does, the, why does Moshe say, Bayom Hazeh, Rosh Chodesh? Listen to this Kutzker. Ella, Rosh Chodesh Asu Yisrael HaChan Lekabal Satorah. Ki ilu hayom nitnu. Shi yudivrei Torah chadashem beinechash b'chol yom shata holich l'mo Torah. Taaseh hachanam mikodem kemo b'shaas matan Torah. Not only does our receiving and the learning of Torah need to be new, but the preparation, the anticipation for Torah needs to be new. What happened on Rosh Chodesh was not receiving the Torah. That doesn't happen to the seventh. What happened on Rosh Chodesh? The hachana, the preparation for Torah. So not only does our learning of Torah need to be with the excitement and the enthusiasm as if it's new, but even our preparation needs to be with that enthusiasm as well. Fast forward. Perikutas Pasuk Dalit. We have time for a couple more, quick. 
So, Atem Re'isem, Asher Asisi L'Mitzrayim, you saw what I did to Egypt, says Hashem, Ve'eso Eschem Akanfei Nesharim, Ve'avi Eschem Elai, a beautiful song by my buddy Simcha Liner, to these words, Ve'eso Eschem Akanfei Nesharim, I will carry you on the wings of eagles, Ve'avi Eschem Elai, and I will bring you to me. We spoke last year, I think, to Orchaim on this, beautiful Orchaim, what this means, what the symbolism is. But Rashi tells us, why, what do you mean, God carries us on the wing of the eagle, Rashi says, goes love because the eagle in particular carries the little uh, birds, little chickies on its wing. All other birds hold their young in their claws underneath them. But the eagle says, stand on my wing above me. So that way, they're protected. So the eagle carries on top of the wing because it soars the highest of all the birds and is protected from everything else below. So Hashem says, I'll carry you on top of the wing, not below the wing, so you will not be struck by any arrow that's being shot from down below. From down below. Says the Chidusharim, Zok the Gerarebbe, says the great Chidusharim, what are the Chitzim and the Blistros that the Mitzrim were Zorkim? Hashem says, I'll carry you on the wings of eagles. You will be immune, protected. You will be above where the arrows can be slung at you. What are the arrows that the Egyptians can sling at you? So they had Tainos. We know that the Mitzrim turned to God and they said, Halalu We're idolaters, they're idolaters. So those were the arrows that the Egyptians were slinging. That a Kodesh Baruch Hu absorbed the blows of those arrows. And nevertheless, showed up to protect the Jewish people. And we could learn something incredible for generations from here. Don't think, you know, I'm not worthy to learn Torah. Because I've made mistakes, I've had shortcomings. I'm inadequate, I'm unworthy. I failed and I have so many failures. So I'm not worthy to start the Torah. All that matters is right now. Shem says, climb aboard. Climb on top of my wing. Aye, but someone's going to say, yesterday you were the late. I'm going to shoot an arrow at you and say, yesterday you were the no good bum. If I saw you coming out of McDonald's, yesterday you were the guy in the back of the shul talking the entire davening in the middle of Kaddish and Kedusha. Yesterday you were the one repeating Lashonara. Yesterday you were the stingy one who never gave staka. And who are you now to think you're sitting and learning Torah? Hashem says, climb on top of my wing. I'll protect you from those arrows. That's exactly what the Mitzvah were flinging at us. And God said, climb aboard. I got your back. I will protect you. I will protect you. Skula Mikola Amen were described. Perkutes Pasakei. Now, that's, what, that's exactly what the Chudish Aram was saying. When the, he says, climb on top of my wing, because all that matters is Atta Don't worry what they're going to fling at you about yesterday. They're going to come at you. I remember you from high school. And boy, do I have some stories about you from high school. I know you, now you think you're the rabbi of a big shul in Florida. I could tell you some stories from high school. So they're flinging arrows. Hashem says, climb on top of the wing. I will protect you. When? When viata im shamoa tishmu Don't worry about high school. And don't worry about yesterday. And don't even worry about earlier this morning. All that matters in the only dimension we live in is viata. Right now. Im shamoa tishmu Hear my voice right now. Listen to my messages right now. 
Shmartem is brisi. V'yisem li skula mikola amim, and be a skula from all the other nations. What does it mean to be a skula from all other nations? This is the makra, the Torah is saying, every Jew should wear a red bendel. No. Definitely not. Tosefta says, when you wear a red string, it's midarche amori. That is a form of the idolatry and superstition we left behind in Egypt. The red bendel, such silly narishkite superstition, that is the, that's what we left behind in Egypt. It's a Tosefta. It says, if you wear a, a red string, it's midarche amori, it's idolatry. That's not skula. Torah says, visili skula, be a skula for me. I know what it is. Read Parsha Saman last week, Parsha B'Sha'ach. Put a key in your chala. Big 40 chalas. He simply skula. Be a skula. Is that what the Torah is telling us? Go find, Google all the skulas and keep them all? Is that what the Torah is telling us? I met with somebody recently who's going through a very hard time, potentially hard time, waiting for a challenging situation. They said, just tell me what to do. I'll bake all the chalas in the world. Started listing off all these skulas. I said, maybe just daven with kavana. Maybe just make an effort to speak less Lashon Hara, not that the person speaks Lashon Hara a lot. Maybe give a little more tzedakah. We have 613 suggestions. We don't need to find new ones or more. Hey, Yisraeli Skula. We have 613 skulas. None of them include a red string. 613 skulas that we have. That's what Rabbi Soloveitchik writes. I'm Skula Mikola Amim. He says the word Skula means singular, separate, distinguished, different. And then he brings a lot of evidence. We don't have time. I want to end with one more thing. But if you look through Tanakh, you see the word skula means different, distinguished, elevated above. When Hashem says, Heisim li skula mikola amim, he doesn't mean be the nation that follows the most silly superstitions. He says, Heisim li skula mikola amim, it means be distinguished with your mitzvos, be distinguished with your midos, be distinguished in who you are and how you behave. 613 dinim, we have halacha that guides us and that makes demands of us. And that's who we are. That's who we are supposed to be. Oh. Okay. I concede. I guess we'll stop here. I had so many more. Tonight, 7.30, you don't want to miss it. This is the Harsinai. This is Bayom Hazeh. This is Atta Shema Bikoli. Tonight, 7.30. Come early, grab your seat. It's going to be an incredible evening. Thank you again. Tomorrow morning, 8.15, Mrs. Sharam, 8.45, Living with Amuna. Tomorrow night, going behind the beam with Revitz with Gadlerstein. Until next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.